presents to us what a mature faith looks like, and in doing so, he shows us what a maturing faith should look like. And we're taking a theme-by-theme approach. Rather than going chapter by chapter like I normally would, we're going theme by theme. So the theme that we're in currently is the sub-theme of trials. This is our third and final week on the sub-theme of trials. And really before I get into this, uh, I'd like to just start with a prayer. So if you would, bow your heads, pray with me. Fathers, we come before you right now. I pray that your word will speak, that you'll give us ears to hear, you'll give me the gift of preaching. And I pray that you would help eliminate the distractions. I know that I'm feeling right now when certain things are not going right, when there's a hiccup here or there. Uh, For me personally, I get a little distracted. I get uh, frustrated, Father, and it seems like so often my patience runs thin. And today is one of those days. And I pray, Father, if anybody else is feeling distracted, frustrated, tired in life, or their patience is running thin, that you would help us to settle in and relax in spirit, Father, in your Holy Spirit, and just see what your Word may have to say to us today. As I give commentary on your Word and give thoughts and give a theme, Father, most importantly, it's your Word, and I know that your Word will not return to you empty as you send it out. I pray that you're shaping us as individuals, families, and as a church, and that we will let the power of your word speak, and you'll give us the ears to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, quick review over what we've looked at last week. There's a couple questions that I asked. One of those is when, and I answered this in a strange way. It's not if we're going to go through trials, it's when. If you're a human being, you live long enough on this earth You're going to go through some kind of trial. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, which we've looked at for about four weeks in a row, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice, whenever. James assumes that to be a human being, you're going to go through tough times. There's a a preacher in Dallas, Texas named Chris Seedman. Some of you have heard him because he always speaks at Winterfest and other large conferences. Uh, So he speaks at a pretty big church in Dallas, and uh, he has a member of his church that plays for the Dallas Mavericks, or at least he did a few years ago. And he told a story one day about how this player, it's unnamed, he he protects his identity, doesn't give the name, Uh, he has a, a game, an NBA game on a Saturday night, he shows up for church on a Sunday morning, and Chris said he noticed him in the hallway, he was walking rather stiff. So he walks up to this guy and he says, are you hurt? Are you injured? And he said, no. He said, at this point in the season, this is this guy's 12th season, he said, at this point in the season, anybody that plays at this level is playing through some kind of pain. And I thought about that. I was like, you know, that is a great example for life. You live long enough, we're probably all walking stiff at some point, whether it's physically or emotionally or mentally, because we're pressing through some kind of pain. James says that whenever you go through trials. So I would say what James is telling us is it's not if you're going to go through trials, it's when. And then the other question I tried to answer last week is where. And the way that I answered it, I know this is kind of a strange way of answering this question, but it's not where the temptation comes from when you go through a trial, because you will face temptation, Uh, We're more susceptible to sin, to temptation when we're struggling, when we're worn out, when we're facing hardship. 
But it's not where does that temptation come from? Does it come from God? Does it come from somebody else? You know, we talked about not blaming last week. And we want to blame all the time. You know, yesterday I watched the Texas and Alabama game. Anybody else watch that? All I did last night when I thought about the game, I was like, well, that was definitely the ref's fault that Texas lost. And then I thought about my own sermon and how I said, don't blame. So you can blame if it's a, it's a true ref's mistake, but don't blame God or blame others when you sin. James says, look within. It's not where it comes from, but look within. And for this lesson today, as we look at James chapter 5, I want to look at this question of why. So as you go through pain, hardship, difficulty in life, there's probably a point in all of our lives where we may ask this question to God. Why? I've been there, and I'm sure some of you have been there as well, as you pray at night, you're sick, you're struggling, maybe your kid is sick or struggling, whatever you may be going through, and there comes a point where you just say, why God? Why is this happening? Have you been there before? I know we probably all have at some point. There's an author named Philip Yancey. Many years ago, he wrote a book called Where is God When It Hurts? A pretty important book dealing with suffering and pain and faith and God and where is God when you're going through tragedy. A few years later, he writes this book that you see on the screen, the question that never goes away, and I don't know if you can see it in the middle there, but the question is, why? Why do we suffer? Why do we go through trials? Why do we go through hardship? Well, Philip Yancey said that because he wrote on suffering and faith, he becomes the guy that they call when there's some kind of tragedy. And he said when the school shooting took place at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newport, Connecticut, within a week, they called him to come speak in that community. Imagine having that role. People facing that kind of tragedy, and he gets the call to come speak to grieving parents, to grieving community. He said when there was a massive tsunami in Japan and thousands of people died tragically, they called him and flew him to Japan to speak. So he's been around the world speaking to people who have had to endure unimaginable trials. And one of the things that he points out in this book is that Christians have this tendency to want to explain why it's happening. He visited one person in the hospital who said he was very confused because he was visited by one believer who said, the reason that this has happened to you is because you're a sinner, because you've sinned and God is punishing you. And he says somebody else comes in and says, the reason this is happening to you is because Satan is attacking you. And then somebody else came in and said, the reason this is happening to you is because God has handpicked you to give him glory. And he said, now I'm just confused. I don't know what really to think. And so what Yancey is highlighting is that we have this tendency to want to know why. Why are we going through these trials? And we have a tendency to try to explain why. Shane read our scripture earlier today, James chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. And I want to read it again to let you really digest it a little bit, soak it in, but think about the question of why as we read James 5, and I'm just going to read verse 7 through 11. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You may have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. First of all, let me point out from this text that James doesn't use the word trials here in this section. But he does use the word suffering. And he uses the word perseverance or endurance, depending on which translation you're looking at. So as I'm reading the book of James as a whole, like I talked about in the first sermon, I'm seeing these themes that that James connects and and just kind of weaves throughout his letter here. And in chapter 1, he talks about trials at a couple different places. And here I see him in chapter 5 returning to the same theme of trials. And did you notice what he says about why we suffer and why we go through trials? Did you notice it? You probably didn't because it's not in there. Because the answer to my, second, or my third question of why is that what I hear James saying is this is not why you go through trials, it's how you go through trials. James doesn't seem to be concerned with, well, let me explain to you why we have to suffer. Maybe why as Christians in that first century they were persecuted, why we go through trials, why bad things happen to good people. He's not concerned with trying to answer that question. And neither are most of the biblical writers. But what James is concerned with is how you go through trials. When you think about a mature faith, which is what we've titled this overall sermon series, what do you think of? What are some characteristics of somebody who has a mature faith? Well, we could have a good discussion on that. But I'll tell you, one characteristic that would for sure be a part of a mature faith is patience. I want to look to somebody who has walked the path longer than me, has endured some trials, and they have developed patience in their life. What is patience? One commentator defined patience like this. He said, patience is to stay put and stand fast when you would like to run. I don't know if that would be a dictionary definition of patience, but I like that definition. To stay put, to stand fast, even when you would like to run. Again, that word connects back to this word perseverance. If you go back to James chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, when you endure these various trials, let uh, persevere through them and then let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Let perseverance finish its work. When I think about patience and waiting on the Lord and what James is teaching here in chapter 5, I think about trapeze artists. Not because I know anything about them really, or ever even seen them in live action, but you kind of get the idea in this picture here. There's an author named Henry Nouwen that died in the mid-90s. Before he died, he wrote several books, was a really important Christian thinker and writer, and towards the end of his life, he became really interested in trapeze artists. Uh, It became fascinated with the relationship between the flyer and the catcher. He actually befriended some of them and and got firsthand knowledge for what they have to experience. So think about a flyer. And these are the guys that do it the real deal. They don't have a safety net to protect them if they fall. So when they're in front of a live audience, the flyer at some point has to let go of that bar, which I don't think I would ever do, (laughs) obviously, 
Something's got to be wrong with you to do that. But anyways, they, they let go of the bar. And then there's a moment where as soon as you let go, the bar's going this way, you're going this way. You can't grab it. You can't undo what you just did. And then you have to wait. You have to hold out your arms and just wait for a catcher to catch you in the middle of the air. And you can't do anything about it to accelerate it. One of the flyers told him that if you try to reach out or you get anxious and start flailing your arms because you're afraid, you can mess the whole thing up and prevent the catcher from being able to catch you. So the flyer said to Henry Nowen, one of the hardest things to do is to just wait in absolute trust. When you're suspended in the air, you're not holding on to the bar anymore, and you've not yet been caught, you just have to wait patiently in absolute trust that the catcher is going to do his job and catch you. And I thought about that as I was preparing this sermon because that's kind of what I see James saying in James chapter 5, verse 7 through 11, is to wait, to be patient, to wait like a, a flyer waiting to be caught by the catcher, to wait on the Lord. Well, what are we being patient for? In verse 7, he says, be patient for the Lord's coming. He mentions that again in verse 8, if you're still looking at James chapter 5. So last year, around this time, I did a sermon series through 1 Thessalonians, one of Paul's earliest letters. And at the end of each chapter, the way that we have it divided in our Bibles, at some point Paul mentions the coming of the Lord, the parousia. That's the main theme of 1 Thessalonians. We titled that sermon series, Until He Comes. So as Paul's dealing with the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, I told you last year, and I'll say it again, that early Christians lived with this constant anticipation that Jesus could return at any moment. 2,000 years go by, and we don't think about that quite as often as early Christians do. But this is what James is saying. Be patient. The Lord is coming. And His coming is near in verse 8. When we think of near, we're like, yeah, weeks, months, a few years, but Near is according to God's timetable. So James is telling us, it's not about why you go through trials, it's about how. And how you go through trials is through patience. Waiting on the Lord for His coming. And he gives us three examples in the text that we read today. The first example is to be patient like a farmer. Anybody have farming experience? I know some of you I've had some farming experience. I, I'm not much of a farmer, so it's hard to me to, for me to fully relate to this. But you think about a farmer in the first century. They're actively waiting. They're not just sitting around doing nothing. They're working the ground. They're fertilizing. They're doing everything that they can to help the crops grow. But there's still some things that are out of their hands. Especially when James is writing this. They can't control the rain and how much water their crops will get. And they can't actually make the crops grow. So a farmer has to wait and be patient. The best example in my own life that I could think of was letting grass grow. In 2019, we bought a house. We moved into this new neighborhood in White Oak. And I did not want to be the neighbor that had bad grass. I wanted to have good grass. That's when you know you've tried to transition into you're a dad now, you're, you're gaining some weight, and you care about your grass. I mean, it's a totally different life stage. And I was in that life stage, and I'm looking at my grass, and there's some spots, some bald spots on it. So I w researched, I went to Walmart, I bought some grass seed, and I did everything you're supposed to do to get the ground ready. I planted the seed, and I watered it every day, and nothing happened. 
And eventually I started to think, is anything ever going to happen? Did I get bad seed? Did I do something wrong at some point? As the summer went on, eventually we went on a short vacation. We left on a Monday morning and came back on a Friday evening. And when we returned, guess what I saw? Green, yes, grass. Green grass was growing. And it was great. I waited. I did everything I was supposed to. And I was excited about the grass, but I was also excited because I actually did something right. I'm a man of few skills, but I did something that actually worked out without harming anyone else. I had to wait. Now, now that's just a small example of what a farmer might have to go through. But James says, be patient, on the Lord. be patient as you wait on the Lord, wait on His second coming, as you endure suffering and trials. Be patient like a farmer is patient. He also says to be patient like the prophets. That's kind of a broad example. Think about the prophets. Well, read the Old Testament. You know, in our Bibles, the way that they're divided, we have the minor prophets, we have the major prophets. And so I'm not going to go into all of the prophets and what they went through, what they had to endure, but a pretty good summary of what the prophets went through is in, found in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm trying to keep an eye on the time here. So I'm actually, uh, just to make sure you get out to class in time, I'm not going to read all of what I was planning on reading, but let me summarize for you. In Hebrews chapter 11, we call this chapter what? The Hall of Faith. Okay, three or four of you knew it. In Hebrews chapter 11, you see this phrase over and over, by faith, by faith, by faith. Abraham, Moses. But then towards the end of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through 40, he basically says, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, and all the prophets. And then up until verse 35, he's saying that they conquered kingdoms, they shut the mouths of lions, you know, they did all these amazing things. And if you stopped at the midway through verse 35, you would think, I want to be a prophet. It sounds like they accomplished some awesome things. But then the second half of verse 35 and beyond, it says, there were others, speaking of the prophets, who were tortured, refusing to be released, so that they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, I don't know if you were just listening, if you flipped over to Hebrews 11 or how familiar you are with that passage, but you think about that, that second half there, it doesn't sound so glorious. In fact, it sounds like just kind of a summary of the prophets, what they went through was quite miserable. Living on the run in caves, holes in the ground, being mistreated, some of them were sawn in tombs, stoned to death, all these things that happened to the prophets and they still didn't receive what was promised to them. But well, that's the second example that James uses here in chapter 5. To be patient like the prophets. Well, how do we relate to that? Because to be honest with you, most of us, we, we go through our own trials, as I mentioned two weeks ago, but we don't really experience persecution like the prophets would have, like early Christians would have. But maybe to bridge the gap just a little bit between James' example of the prophets and maybe what we experience in comfortable Christianity in America, 
I had a teacher about four, five, six years ago who said in one of, a class, uh, one of the classes I was taking one day, he said, God is bringing the era of comfortable Christianity to an end. God is bringing the era of comfortable Christianity to an end. I wrote that down, and I've dwelled on it ever since. What does he mean by that? Well, we're not going to get into the depths of how faith is changing in America and what's going on around us and what's happened in Europe. But basically, as Christians, we've experienced a certain level of comfort for a very long time, for centuries. And as the culture shifts, as things start to change, and maybe we catch a little resistance, that's another word I've used for, tri for trials in this series, how will we respond? How will we respond if we don't always get our way and it's not always comfortable for us? Well, James says, look to the prophets. They remained faithful even though they didn't receive what was promised to them on this earth and they were patient. So James tells us to be patient like a farmer, be patient like the prophets, and then that third example he uses is to be patient like Job. Now, what do you know about Job? Maybe you're familiar with the story of Job. Maybe you've never read Job. Maybe it's just been a while and you need a refresher. So let me give you a quick refresher before I get you out to class on time. For one, Job, this is the only place where Job is mentioned in the New Testament, right here in James chapter 5, which I find interesting. Nobody else uses Job as an example, only James. So here's a broad stroke of the story of Job, of the book of Job. If you look at chapter 1, it starts with, Job is this good man, he's righteous, he's blameless, he's upright, he makes sacrifices to God. He makes sacrifices for his children just in case they've sinned. That's the kind of person Job was, but he was very wealthy. What Job doesn't know, that in the heavenly realms, the sons of God come before Yahweh to present themselves to him, and Satan is there. And so Satan and God are having this conversation, God brags on Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Well, Satan says, you know Job only worships you because you've made his life quite comfortable. He's rich. He has everything he needs. That's why Job worships you. So Satan asks for permission to send tragedy on Job's life. And he does. You look at uh, the rest of Job chapter 1, and one tragedy after another comes. He loses his livestock, his animals, and even his own children. The end of Job chapter 1, he's suffering, he's hurting, but he still worships God. Then you get chapter 2, Satan comes before the presence of God again. Job has no idea that any of this is going on, and then Satan, and God is still bragging on Job, consider my servant Job, well Satan says, okay, let me hurt him, skin for skin. Let me afflict him, and so... For whatever reason, Satan's given permission. Now Job has lost everything, and now physically he's hurting. He's scraping the sores on his skin, and his wife is telling him, curse God and die. And we're told in Job chapter 2 that Job still does not sin in all of this, but Job is also not told why any of it's happening. And then here's a really broad stroke of Job chapter 3, verse 37. He has three friends that come talk to him. And then towards the end of this section, he has a fourth guy that shows up. A lot of dialogue, a lot of monologue. And overall, what they're discussing is why has this happened to Job? This rich, wealthy, faithful man has lost everything, suffered greatly. Why? 
And in their mindset, their theology is, Job must have done something to deserve this. And they kick around all these different theories. And finally, God speaks in chapters 38 through 41. And you go back and read that in Job, and it's kind of amazing what God says back to Job. Basically, in summary, telling Job, you have a very limited perspective. All you see is your world. I see the whole thing. And so some of the chaos out there has entered into Job's world, and still God does not tell Job why any of it happened. There's never a moment where God says, okay, Job, let me tell you this. I was bragging about you. Satan wanted to harm you. We were testing your faith. Job never gets that explanation. But it has a happy ending, I guess. In chapter 42, Job is restored. He receives back everything that he had, twice as much, except for children, because human life cannot be replaced like that. Okay, so there's Job in, uh, I don't know, maybe three minutes. You get the whole story, right? That's not bad. I worked really hard all week to try to summarize Job for you real quickly. But why, is, why does James use Job as an example of patience? And no other New Testament writer does. Well, I think the way that James, if you look at what James is talking about, being patient for the coming of the Lord, you look at Job's story and what Job receives in the end is Job and his restoration is a foreshadowing of what we can expect when Christ returns. That Jesus will make things right, that all things will be restored. And so as we're patient on the Lord, look at what Job received what God finally brought about, and you can only imagine what that would be like when Christ does return. So James says, be patient. And he tells us, he doesn't say Job was patient, but he does say Job persevered. So let me go back over these three questions really quick, and then the lesson will be yours. It's not if we're going to go through trials, it's when. We're all going to face trials at some point in our lives. We're going to be tempted when we go through trials, and it's not... Who to blame is God giving us temptation? James says in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 18, look within yourself. And then the question I was asking today is why? And James says, it's not why do we go through trials, it's how. James does not attempt to answer for us why we suffer. The prophets never receive an answer as to why they suffered and why they didn't receive what was promised to them. Job never receives an answer to why. But what we are told here is how. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You go through these trials, and that's part of the maturing of your faith. But then in chapter 5, he says, Be patient as you go through these trials. Be patient because the Lord's coming is near. So this morning as we get ready to sing another song, I don't know what may resonate with you from this text, but if there's something stirred within you, if you need to talk to me or one of our elders who's here today, uh, if you want to talk about being baptized into Christ, we can talk to you about that. If you need to be prayed for, seriously, this is a time. We call it an invitation time. If we can help you at all, come see one of us. I want to invite you to stand. We'll continue to sing.